Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, When Jesus Seems Too Late. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 2015, a couple hundred passengers on Etihad Airways Flight 183 from Abu Dhabi to San Francisco were stranded on the tarmac for 12 hours amid hellish conditions. Apparently, the Boeing 777 was delayed by fog in Abu Dhabi before departing for its 16-hour flight to San Francisco. Passengers were told by the crew that the Abu Dhabi airport was too crowded for uh, the passengers to deplane and, and wait out the fog in the airport. And so they were kept on the plane. While sitting on the plane, passengers uh, posted on social media about nightmarish circumstances that included little to no water, uh, no diapers for small children backed up toilets, and only a small snack that was served. Throughout the entire ordeal, travelers were told that repeatedly over that 12-hour period that they would be taking off in 30 to 45 minutes. And then that time would pass, and it would be, it's going to be another 30 to 45 minutes. It's going to be another 30 to 45 minutes. Yeah, but that's what you said last time. To make matters worse, the original flight crew was replaced after they had exceeded their limits uh, for flight hours, uh, according to uh, international law, and so the passengers had to watch the original crew get relieved and a new crew brought in, all the while being stuck still on the tarmac. Later, after they arrived in San Francisco, passengers were interviewed and some posted on social media and reported lost luggage or damaged luggage after that entire ordeal. Etihad Airways Flight 183 now has the dubious honor of being one of the longest tarmac flight delays in aviation history. Sometimes waiting on Jesus feels like you're sitting in a plane, on a tarmac, for 12 hours amid hellish conditions. It can feel like there is no water to quench your thirst, nothing to get rid of the stench, the toilets are backed up, and the small snacks of encouragement the Lord is giving you aren't satisfying your need for relief. And your frustration continues to mount and increase because the wait gets longer and longer and it seems as if everyone else and their lives with the Lord are getting to take off. We're taking a break from our series in Proverbs today, but we'll resume it next week. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to John chapter 11. If you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. We have plenty of Bibles we can loan you. But John chapter 11, 
I also want to encourage you to take notes uh, using the sermon note handout that's in the worship folder you received. Uh, You may not be struggling, or maybe you haven't had to wait on the Lord today, but I can promise you, as someone that's walked with the Lord for 25 years, you will have to wait on Him eventually. And you're going to want to have some notes down that you can save in your Bible or keep them somewhere and pull them out so that you can encourage yourself. I'd like us to look at a story in the Gospel of John today that I hope will encourage your faith as it has mine numerous times as I've had to wait on the Lord over the years. Our big idea for today is this, waiting on Jesus is always worth the wait. Waiting on Jesus is always worth the wait. You, you need to be familiar with this story in John chapter 11 if you feel permanently stuck in difficult circumstances. You, you need to be familiar with this story in John chapter 11 if you've been asking the Lord for an important answer to prayer that just never seems to come. Or maybe if you've been waiting on the Lord to provide healing, reconciliation, uh, financial resources, justice, a job, a spouse, children, then you need to know this story. Or to put it another way, you need to be familiar with this story if you've ever had an unanswered prayer or have ever been disappointed with the Lord. And so, in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I'm going to do something a little different than what I normally do. This is a large chunk of Scripture, and so I want to read through it with you and make some, uh, some observations and comments and give you a little background of what's happening, and then we'll spend the rest of our time pulling some principles out of the passage of what we can learn from this. And so, uh, follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 1 through 5. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Let's stop right there and notice, if you would, where it says, the Lord, Lord, he whom you love. This is Mary and Martha and Lazarus and their family were part of Jesus' inner circle. They were, they were close to the Lord. They were friends. The Lord called them his friends. But it's important to note that although they were part of his inner circle of relationships, these verses remind us that being loved by Jesus does not mean we are exempt from suffering. And especially suffering the effects of the fall. Notice in verse 4, 
Jesus says this illness does not end in death. This is a key sentence that you're going to need to know uh, as we get in deeper into the story uh, because Jesus is promising that this illness will not end in death, but he does not promise Lazarus will not suffer. Now look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Interesting, if you compare the verbs from verse 5 to the verbs in verse 6 that are assigned to Jesus, you get this. And I, I want to encourage you to mark this in your Bible like I have mine. Jesus loved, so he stayed. Jesus loved, so he stayed. Didn't verse 5 just say that he loved Lazarus? But he stayed where he was. Wait a minute, he's dying, Lord. Jesus loved, but he stayed. Didn't verse 5 just tell us that he was close to his family? I mean, if he loved him, why didn't he go rush to be with Lazarus next to his bedside to comfort him or maybe even heal him? Jesus loved, so he stayed. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? The disciples were puzzled by what Jesus was wanting to do here. Uh, they might have been thinking, well, why, don't you, why doesn't he just do a long-distance healing of Lazarus? I mean, he's done that before. In fact, he did it back in John chapter 4. He doesn't have to be in the room with the person to heal him. He could just snap his fingers and wink his eye or something, and they're healed wherever they are in the country. And, and, and why does he want to go back into the hornet's nest of a bunch of Jews that want to kill him? This is crazy. But Jesus wasn't afraid. Now, if you would look at verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Uh, since the coming of Christ, uh, death for the believer has been called sleep, and it's called that several times in the New Testament by the New Testament authors. Uh, it, 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 it's a metaphor that not only conveys the peace that death brings to the authentic Christ follower, but also, the temporary, excuse me, the temporariness, and that is an actual word I looked it up in the dictionary. <laughs> temporariness. True believers are promised a future resurrection just like Christ. However, we can see in the text the disciples think that Jesus, excuse me, that Lazarus is just resting like any sick person would with the flu or something. They would be needing extra rest and sleeping throughout the day. So the disciples aren't putting it together yet. Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep, meaning Jesus knows that Lazarus has died. But the disciples think Lazarus is just napping because he's ill. Look at verse 12. So the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. See what I mean? He just needs a bunch of rest. 
He'll get better. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest in sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. For your sake, I am glad I was not there. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Messengers had been sent to alert him of this death. A pastor couldn't get away with saying that. You know, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Could you imagine one of your closest friends not coming to see you in the hospital as you held the hand of your loved one next to their bedside in their final hours? And then, and then that same friend shows up a few days later at the funeral and says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. See, Jesus, once again, he's just defying conventional wisdom and cultural uh, uh, trends of things that we, we naturally do. And, and here's Jesus again, just blowing synapses for people. Are you kidding me? He's dying. You don't want to go be with the family and comfort them and encourage them. And, and, and you're saying it was actually good that you weren't there? What? More on this later. Look at verses 17 and 19 with me. Now when Jesus came, so he's arrived, he's traveled, it's at least a day's travel, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Because it was extremely warm in the region, decomposition of the body would have set in quickly. It was custom in those days for a person then to be buried on the same day that they died for this reason. Now, there is some evidence in historical documents that uh, some rabbis believed a person's soul would hover near the body after death for three days, hoping that the soul might be able to be reunited with the body within that time span. According to this Jewish superstition, and it is superstition, if the soul was unable to re-inhabit the body by the fourth day, it would depart for good into eternity because the body was no longer desirable or inhabitable due to decomposition. If this rabbinic superstition, superstition was taught in Jesus' lifetime, it would explain why Jesus waited as long as he did. In addition, it would have taken Jesus about a day to get there from where he was to Bethany. I think the four days passing is significant because Jesus wanted everybody to realize that Lazarus was dead dead. That, that it was no kind of uh, one of those stories that you sometimes hear in the news where the heart just stopped for a while and then they, they came back or they had one of those experiences where they, they went to, to heaven and then came back and got to write a book and publish a movie about it. 
I'm not going to say anything more about that. That's another sermon. But, 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 but Jesus, I think, wanted everybody to know that Lazarus was somewhere between very dead and completely dead. So that the authenticity of what he was about to do would never be questioned. Look at verses 20 to 22. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Mary and Martha both respond differently. We'll see Mary's response in a minute. One of my mentors used to always remind me when studying the scriptures to look for the emotion in the text. What emotions are there? Well, can you feel Martha's disappointment with the Lord? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Verse 28, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Martha eventually expresses faith that Jesus is capable of doing anything. But next, Mary comes out to meet Jesus. And keep in mind, Mary stayed back in the house earlier, and I think she may have done that because she was even more disappointed in the Lord. So as Jesus shows up four days late, Mary says the same thing that Martha said. Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Although Mary said the same thing that Martha did in verse 21, please note that she expressed deep disappointment with no faith. I wonder if she was thinking about, I wonder if she kept thinking in her mind uh, about what Jesus had said in verse 4 that this illness will not lead to death. And maybe she was thinking to herself, um, Lord, he's dead. 
We, we, we sent for you just like you said we were supposed to do. But you didn't come. You, you, you healed lots of people. You've even healed strangers. Do you not heal your friends too? You, you, you said my brother was your friend. We, we, we had a funeral and we buried him and, and, and the neighbors brought meals and, and, and now we're trying to start a new chapter without him and figure out what to do with his family. I thought you said this wasn't going to happen, Lord. Why, why, why didn't you keep your word? I wonder how many people here today maybe have your own story that you can tell about being disappointed in Jesus like this. I know I have some of my own stories. But contrary to how some might have felt that day, Jesus did care, and Jesus did have something better in mind. Look at verses 33 to 43 now with me. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not? He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. St. Augustine is famous for many quotes in church history, but one quote that he said about this passage is that there was so much power in the Son of God's voice that if he had not said Lazarus, every dead body within earshot would have been resurrected. <laughs> when I was reading that again, that quote last night, I was trying to imagine what it would have been like, 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 like if, if Jesus would have needed to say something like, only Lazarus come out, you know? The rest of y'all stay in there. I'm only resurrecting Lazarus today. But there's, there's a lot going on in this story on various levels. And for one, I think, I think Jesus wanted to prove his deity 
by demonstrating his power over death. But I also think he wanted to give the disciples a preview of his own death and burial and resurrection. And he had been talking to them about this already in his ministry, and they were, as we know from the Gospels, having a hard time understanding what is he talking about. And perhaps the disciples would be more willing to believe Jesus could resurrect himself if they saw him do it for someone else. So I think that's going on here, but there's also some things I think on a personal level, a spiritual level, in our relationship to Jesus and how we see prayer in Jesus working in our lives that we can also glean from this passage. Now, when studying the scriptures, we can extract a lot of truth from any passage or any verse by simply asking ourselves two questions. First of all, what does the passage say about God? What is it revealing about his character and how he works? And then the second question we can ask ourselves is, what does the passage say about us? What's it reveal about how we think as humans and what we're prone to do? And so I did that with this passage, and I came up with five uh, simple, quick principles that I hope will encourage you today. Here's the first one on your outline. This is principles from the passage. Uh, Number one, delay does not always mean denial. Delay does not always mean denial. When Jesus seems too late, many of us, including myself, are prone to assume Jesus missed my deadline because he said no. I had a deadline in my mind of when I needed him to come through by, and he did not come through, so he must have said no. Therefore, I am deeply disappointed in him because I really needed him to come through by that deadline. But we know from verse 4 that Jesus had already said this illness will not lead to death. And and yet, we've got to be honest with ourselves, sometimes there are circumstances we observe with our own eyes that contradict what Jesus seems to say. This illness will not lead to death. Okay, but there's a guy that just died. (laughs) What what do we do with that, Lord? I, I understand that. I've had that happen in my own life. Not somebody dying and then coming back to life, but, but I've, I've had things where I'm going, okay, Lord, this verse in this book of the Bible says this, but that happened. Why, why, why is there some incongruency here that I don't know what to do with? Help me, Father, please, to understand this. So I have found in my own life, and I've seen in the lives of other Christ followers, that when Jesus delays an answer to prayer, we almost always assume that he is not going to come through. And we're not the first to do this. In the Psalms, David wrote about it, waiting for the Lord to answer prayers and how he felt that the Lord had forgotten him. But Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. So delay does not always mean denial, and waiting on Jesus is always worth the wait, as we can see from John 11. But there's still this nagging question that I have, why did Lazarus have to die? I mean, come on, why did he have to go through all that? 
So in addition to the contextual reasons I gave you a few minutes ago about Jesus wanting to prove he had power over death and maybe wanting to give a preview of his own death, burial, resurrection, here's two personal answers I can think of. There may be more, but here's two. So, so this, is, this is not on your outline, but it'll be on the keynote screen behind me. I've got A and B for you under number one. So why did Jesus let Lazarus die? Um, a, sometimes Jesus wants to give us a resurrection instead of a healing. Sometimes Jesus, I think, wants to give us more or something better than what we're asking for. One of the most common lies the adversary will try to tell us, though, and it's the lie that he told Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, and I'm paraphrasing here, and that is the adversary will try to tell us the Lord's holding out on you because he's not as good as he says he is. Yet the story of Lazarus here is one of several in the scriptures that prove he's actually better. <laughs> he's better. Still, still, it's hard for some of us to believe the Lord wants better for us than what we can imagine. I think another reason, though, we wrestle, or excuse me, I think another reason we are willing to settle for a healing instead of waiting for a resurrection is that we are impatient. And unfortunately, our impatience in prayer sometimes gets us a TV dinner nuked in a microwave when we could have a five-course meal made with all natural ingredients by a gourmet chef if we would just be willing to wait. So sometimes Jesus wants to give us a resurrection instead of a healing. But here's another reason I think Jesus, excuse me, Lazarus had to die. Another reason that Lazarus had to die, B, something has to die before there can be a resurrection. Thus, we may be the one causing the delay instead of him. I'm not saying that's always the case. But the Lord may be waiting for something to die in us before he comes through with the resurrection that we are dying to have, or the answer to prayer. We might need to crucify selfish desires or plans. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, that we are to put off the old self and put on the new self. Uh, maybe it's, like, for example, I've seen this in, in marriage counseling with couples um, uh, that are, you know, have their marriages on the rocks, and when I've met with couples before that need marriage counseling, one of the things I have to help them understand is that the old way of you doing marriage has to die first before you can have a newly resurrected marriage. You've got to kill everything that you were used to doing. All the habits and sin patterns, all that's got to go away. We see this concept of death before resurrection and conversion. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that when the old rebellious unbeliever dies, a new creation is born in Christ. So, it's possible 
the delay you're experiencing in prayer could be that the answer is being prepared for you or that you are being prepared for the answer. The delay you are experiencing in prayer could be that the answer is being prepared for you or that you are being prepared for the answer. So, first principle that we learned from Lazarus, resurrection is a delay does not always mean denial. Here's number two. Denial does not mean desertion. Denial does not mean desertion. Uh, again, something else we tend to assume, and I'm guilty of this, I'm preaching to myself here this morning, is that Jesus said no because Jesus doesn't care. That's our tendency. But what we see clearly in verses 5 and 33 and 35 and verse 38 is that Jesus does care about this family. So when, when the answer to our prayers is denied, we can be tempted to think that Jesus doesn't care. However, as we see in the story and the verses I just referenced, Jesus cares more about the spiritual growth of his people than he does their physical comfort. So much so that he was willing to let Jesus, Lazarus die, and he was willing to let the family suffer and mourn and grieve in order to teach them a more long-lasting, deeper spiritual truth. I could do a whole sermon series on that right there. The Lord never promised we, could, we would never suffer during our short life on earth. And that's a double negative. I think I can do that grammatically. But the Lord never promised that we would never suffer in our life here on earth. However, he did promise to be with us in suffering and to get us through suffering. And one reason for this is that Suffering reminds us that we live in a world damaged by the fall. On the other hand, miracles remind us there's a new world coming that has no suffering and sin. Thus, Jesus dealt with both during his ministry. He allowed suffering as a result of the fall. It's our fault because we rebelled and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, but he also does some miracles to give us hope that there's a new world coming, a new kingdom, in which there will be no more crying or pain or suffering and sin. And so, just like any good parent tells their child, sometimes the Lord in prayer says no, sometimes he says not yet, because yes is not what's best. And he makes us Sometimes take his best because he loves us too much to let us settle for anything else. So denial does not mean desertion. It doesn't mean that the Lord has just left us by the curb. Here's number three. Silence does not mean he's uninformed. Silence does not mean he's uninformed. Uh, we assume and I've done this many times myself, that Jesus hasn't answered because he's unaware, as though the message didn't get through to him somehow, or he's not hearing my prayers. 
You might remember in verse 11 that, that Jesus knew Lazarus had died before the messengers had actually told him, and then Jesus decided to go see Lazarus. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, but when I was a younger believer, I used to pray in a way that, as though Jesus didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> okay, I'm the only one that ever did this, you know, but... but it, I felt like I had to fill him in, you know? And I, I, looking back, I realized I, my theology was undeveloped and I did not understand his omnipresence or his omniscience. And I finally, that clicked for me when I, several years ago, was studying prayers in Scripture and I was studying the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and came across Matthew 6, 8, where it says... Uh, Jesus says this, actually, when teaching on prayer. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. At first, this verse gave me great comfort, knowing that the father knows. But then, secondly, it, it meant I didn't have to waste time filling him in because he knows. <laughs> Matthew 6, 8 is a reminder that the the first purpose in prayer is to get the Lord in prayer instead of trying to get what the Lord can give in prayer. And I'm still learning this. Is it, and that is, it, if my goal in prayer is to just get what I want, and then when Jesus doesn't give me everything I want in prayer, I'm setting myself up for disappointment. However, if my goal in prayer is to get Jesus in prayer, I'll never be disappointed because I'll always get Jesus in prayer. I'm still learning that. So silence does not mean he's uninformed. But waiting on Jesus is always worth the wait. Here's number four. Waiting increases faith. Waiting increases faith. What we assume is that faith is built by instant gratification. Because of our inherited sin nature, we tend to think, Lord, if you'll just give me what I want or sort of need or if I can convert someone's into needs to somehow get you to give me what I want, then my faith in you will increase as my provider. But when Jesus says in verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, he's revealing the fact that long-term spiritual growth in his followers is more important than meeting short-term physical needs. And he tells his disciples that he did this so that you may believe. Uh, believe is, uh, hopefully you notice this, one of the recurring terms in the passage. But, but sometimes Jesus delays because there is something better he plans on doing, but he also delays so that he can grow our faith. It, but it's contrary to how we normally think, because again, we think, so long as Jesus answers my prayers in my timeline with what I ask for, my faith will grow. But Jesus thinks differently. He thinks, no, 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 no. If I can teach you to wait and to walk by faith, not by sight, then your faith will grow. 
you've heard me say before that Jesus prepares people in a crockpot, not a microwave. Uh, the, the scriptures speak a lot about waiting on the Lord. Psalm 25, for example, uh, says that those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. And Isaiah 40 says that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and mount up on wings like eagles, and we love it. It's a great, inspiring passage in Isaiah 40. Tons of songs have been written about, about Isaiah 40, but one of the things I've noticed about myself, and maybe you too have done this, is that when I hear Isaiah 40 sung or I read Isaiah 40, I seem to skip over the part about waiting on the Lord. I like the part about rising up on eagles' wings and, and flying and all that stuff. But the condition is those who wait on the Lord. So if the Lord sometimes delays answers to my prayers because the weight increases my faith, well then how does he define faith? Because I'm kind of having a crisis of faith here. I thought you'd never ask. So here's a biblical definition of faith. You've, some of you have heard me share this before, but it's been a while since I've reviewed it. Faith in the scriptures is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel knowing that God promises a good result. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel knowing that God promises a good result. So, so biblical faith is much more than some generic belief in spiritual things like we so often hear on TV talk shows or hear out of the world. It's that real faith is rooted in the Word of God. Thus, if you're not in the Word and walking in the Word and learning the Word, your faith will not grow. And it's rooted in the Word of God because that's how we learn who God is and what He wants. Faith requires application because failing to apply the Word means we don't really believe what it says about Him and it's His Word. And real faith also requires doing it regardless of what our emotions are telling us because the Lord promises good will come out of doing what he commands. So faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. I read this uh, quote by Philip Yancey recently in my devotions. He once wisely said this, and I, I, I thought this would encourage you as it did me. Uh, Yancey says, I have learned that faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Again, I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've done this many times. I have tried to use making sense as a qualifier for my faith or a contingent. So, so therefore, we can't make waiting or walking in faith contingent upon the Lord making sense to us or us understanding what he's doing first. Well, Lord, I'm not going to do that because it doesn't make any sense. So why don't you just get back to me, Lord, when you start making some sense, and then I'll decide I'm going to have faith and walk with you. No, we can't do that. It doesn't work that way. So I have learned that faith means trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Thank you, Philip Yancey, for that insight. Finally, number five, the fifth principle that we can glean from the Lazarus story in John 11. Jesus is never late. He just doesn't follow our schedule. Now, I know some of you are sitting here thinking, 
Well, like, duh. Like, I know that. But there are others of you that are like me thinking, okay, I needed to be reminded of that because I have spent a lot of energy and been frustrated for many years trying to get Jesus on my schedule, and it's still not working. For some reason, he just won't do it. I've even tried sharing my schedule with him on Google Calendar. I've tried different things. I've sent him invitations to certain events that I want him there at. And he's, he's, just not, he's not cooperating with me. And some would say that Jesus showed up late in John 11, four days late, in fact. But in Jesus' mind, he showed up right on time. And he showed up right in time to do exactly what he had planned on doing. The renowned 19th century preacher Phillips Brooks was known both for his passionate defense of the Trinity uh, in a season in our country's history when Unitarianism was on the rise in New England, but also Phillips Brooks is known and famous for authoring the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. His intimate friends uh, knew that Bishop Brooks suffered from moments of frustration and irritability. And one particular day, a friend saw Bishop Brooks pacing the floor like a caged lion. And so his friend asked him, what is the trouble, Dr. Brooks? To which Brooks replied, the trouble is that I am in a hurry, but God is not. Just go ahead, let's be real. Raise your hand if you've ever said that, prayed that. Thank you. The rest of y'all are lying. You know, I've had to learn over and over again over the years that Jesus just won't be rushed. I can't make him hurry up. I wish that I could. But I think, we, I think we also struggle with God's timing because we're living in a world that keeps speeding up more and more with things like high-speed internet and live streaming and instant messaging and online shopping and texting. And, and while all these things are great and I love technology, one of the things, though, I've observed is that the world is speeding up and it's governed by a God that is not speeding up. He, he stays the same pace. So, so the world's changing, and it's making us more impatient at how fast things are going, and we're getting used to getting things faster. Man, you can sign up for Amazon Prime, and two days you'll get what you want. In fact, Amazon is even testing out drone delivery on the same day, so you don't have to wait. But the Lord, he'll still take 25 years to answer a prayer. <laughs> So, a couple applications. Here's two that come to mind. And I, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here again, and I've, I've been trying to do these things, but the first is to memorize scriptures about the Lord's goodness. This will counteract the lies of the adversary, because the, the adversary will, will try to tell us the reason you're experiencing a delay is that you've been told no, or God isn't good, so God isn't going to give you what you want, or he doesn't care for you and doesn't want to give you what you need. Those are things that the adversary will try to tell us. But Jesus used the same tactic of, of counteracting the lies of the adversary with Scripture, Word of God, in 
um, his 40-day wilderness experience. I think that's in Matthew 4. You can read about that. He, he countered Satan's lies with the truth of God's word. So when you're waiting on God or disappointed in him, one of the first characteristics that you will be prone to question is his goodness. It may mask itself in different ways, but the adversary will rush in there and try and different sneaky, crafty, underhanded, under-the-table ways to get you to believe that God is not as loving as he says he is and he's not as good as he says he is. Or maybe he's good to everybody else, he's just not good to you. Those are the lies. But you have to counteract the lies with the truth of God's word. So something I've done in different seasons when I've struggled with that is I've gone like to go on the internet or go to BibleGateway.com and I just search uh, Bible verses on God's goodness and then write them out on three by five cards and I stick them up throughout the house, you know, kitchen cabinet, dashboard of my car, bathroom mirror, so that I can see these verses throughout my day reminding me that the Lord is good, the Lord is good, the Lord is good. Or maybe verses that remind me of how he's been good. God's goodness is one of the many characteristics that the authors of Scripture testify to. You can see it all over the Psalms and other places as well. So memorize Scriptures about the Lord's goodness. Here's number two, the second application. What do we do with this now that we've talked about delays in prayer and the Lazarus resurrection story? Application number two, learn to trust God's leading and his timing. Learn to trust God's leading and his timing. Uh, Most of us, myself included, want the Lord to answer our prayers in our timing. But that doesn't usually bring about God's best. Therefore, if we want God's best, we have to also be willing to wait for his timing. And that might, it, it might just mean waiting Months? It could mean waiting years. We can't have both our timing and God's best. Again, that'd be like telling a gourmet chef, I want your best meal you've ever made, but could you microwave it, please? Because I don't want to wait for you to make it. You would never do that, right? And the Lord doesn't work like that either. The Lord sees things we don't see, knows things we don't know, and loves more than we're capable of understanding. So learn to trust God's leading in and his timing. Well, you've done great. You've taken a lot of notes, and you've listened well, and even laughed at some of my jokes. I appreciate that. Sometimes waiting on Jesus feels like you're sitting in a plane, on a tarmac, everybody say, for 12 hours amid hellish conditions. You don't have to say that last part. But if we can learn to rest in his goodness and to trust in his timing, we'll experience firsthand that waiting on Jesus is always worth the wait. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.